Hey, how's it going, everyone? It's Pastor Dan here. Thank you uh, for tuning in uh, for the message, part three of our series at Park Community Church on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and, you know, I, I just want to say that this, this, this series has been, it's been challenging. And I know going in, that was the hope of, you know, why we wanted as pastors to teach through the Sermon on the Mount, because we, we knew that it would speak directly to some things that are going on uh, in, in our city, in our, our world right now. And uh, in fact, you know, we, we, we believe that whenever you might be watching this, whether it's in the beginning of May 2020, uh, while we're all under quarantine, or several months from now, or a couple years from now, uh, the Sermon on the Mount just has a way of stepping on our toes. Uh, it has a way of highlighting the, the beauty of what the kingdom of heaven really is going to look like, what it should be looking like now here on earth. Uh, you know, as, as Christians, we're praying that God's kingdom would be right now as it already is in heaven. Uh, but it's challenging. You know, it, it's a hard passage to, not to understand, right? It's, it's hard to, to apply. You know, there's, there's a really famous quote from, I believe it's Mark Twain, uh, who said, it's not the passages of the Bible that I don't understand that frighten me. Uh, it's the ones I do understand. And that's, that's what the Sermon on the Mount is filled with. It is filled with very clear and direct statements of Jesus as he's teaching. Uh, and we're kind of left in this place of, how could this possibly be true of us? How, how do we do this? How do we live in this way? Uh, and so, man, I've, I've been encouraged, been challenged, and I hope you have too, uh, as, you know, maybe you're, you're sitting down just, you know, with an open Bible wanting to listen to the message again. Uh, so we're going to get started here in just a second. Uh, like I said, uh, we're in part three of the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, if you think about it this way, the Sermon on the Mount is really Jesus' prototype message Right, this is his uh, quintessential message that he's probably been traveling uh, as he goes through the rest of the, the Gospel of Mark, Matthew, uh, and he's continuing to teach. This is like the, this is his back pocket message. These, these are the things that he's teaching. In fact, you can see a lot of the themes that Jesus will address here in the Sermon on the Mount will show up repeatedly through the rest of the Gospel of Matthew. So this is a good snapshot of what Jesus was teaching as he was going around from city to city proclaiming the kingdom of heaven. So let me uh, do this. Let me just read uh, the first part, and then we will pray, and we'll get started. Matthew 5, uh, we're in the Beatitudes says this, seeing the crowds, uh, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and they, uh, he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And that's the one we're looking at today. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Let me pray real quick, and then we'll get started. Father, we just want to thank you for uh, the opportunity to open your word and the mindfulness that we have that you speak to us through your word. It's not my ideas that have any power. It's not my thoughts, but it's your word when it's spoken after you uh, that will accomplish your purpose in our lives. And so we pray that, um, you know, wherever we're at right now, 
just listening to this on our phones or on our TV, whatever it is, uh, Lord, speak to us. Grip us with the Sermon on the Mount. Would it lead us to repentance? Would it lead us to uh, a, a wondering, uh, uh, an amazement of what the kingdom of heaven looks like? Lord, we thank you and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Blessed are the meek, verse 3, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And I think this is one of the, this is one of the most challenging uh, beatitudes in this section on the Sermon on the Mount. And again, it's not because it's hard to understand. It's, it's very easy to understand. Uh, it's hard because we, we scratch our heads and wonder, like, how do we apply being meek? We'll get to this in a second because I think a lot of us have some baggage around what the word meek means. We bring some other ideas that uh, maybe are a little foreign to what Jesus had in mind when he first used the word. But uh, it's challenging because uh, this is a general statement. Jesus is saying, again, this is the quality of someone who is living in the kingdom of heaven. This is what people are like in the kingdom of heaven. They are meek. Doesn't give a whole lot of wiggle room. And so I think what's hard about this is we come up with our whole list of questions and, and wonder, like, in, in, in what situation are we supposed to be meek? Like, are we, are we supposed to be meek in the face of injustice? Are we supposed to uh, be meek when, um, when we're being taken advantage of? I know, you know, if you're watching this in the first week of May, <coughs> second week of May, you know, you know, as a country, we've just been haunted by the story of Ahmad uh, Arbery, the jogger running in, in Georgia, who was uh, murdered on a jog, and then the, the delay in having the people arrested, and, uh, and, and you look at this passage that in Matthew 5, and, and you think, is meekness the response that uh, his family was supposed to have? You see, you see why this is hard? Because we, we, we naturally want to come up with a whole bunch of situations and scenarios when we don't need to be meek. Now, I think it's, it's fair to get into the question, you know, what does it mean to be meek? What does it mean to be meek? Uh, and that, that's an important one. You know, if you, uh, I, th- I think if you're like me, in general, we, we tend to associate the word meek, if, if we even use that word at all, right? Most of us have, don't use the word meek in our normal vocabulary, but when we hear it, or if we were to use it, we, we generally associate it with something, uh, we, we generally associate it with something that, that you know, to, to be timid or weak, right? I mean, the, the word meek, I mean, it conjures up images of like the, the Neville Longbottoms, the Toby Flendersons, the, uh, the Jane Bennets of the world, people who are hardly assertive, right? They, they may have uh, a quiet opinion, but uh, they're not going to put up a fight. They'll kind of just go with the flow. Even if you go on Google right now and, and just, just type in the word meek, the definition that will pop up right away is, is this. To be meek is to be quiet, uh, gentle, and easily imposed upon Submissive. I think it's not a stretch. When we hear the word meek, we associate it with someone who's a pushover, uh, who just quickly gives up. The problem is those are not exactly qualities we value today. Certainly not qualities, you know, in the face of injustice we would encourage people to have. 
right? Those aren't qualities we really value. So uh, when Jesus talks about meekness in the kingdom of heaven, uh, I mean, it's kind of like this, I get, okay, you know, it doesn't really capture the imagination. It doesn't really, like, draw us into something that we want to be a part of. But I think this is where we need to be really careful students of the Bible. Re- really careful, because, you know, w- we can look at this word, and we have one o- two options. We can either uh, interpret it through how we understand the words mean, or we can go back and see other places in the Bible that talk about meekness to, to help round out the picture of what Jesus had in mind when he uses this word. Because I think what we'll find is that Jesus had in mind something drastically different than what we think of when we hear the word meek. Let me show you what I mean. Actually, it's, it's very interesting. In the Beatitudes, uh, this, this Beatitude, this one, uh, in verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That is, this is the only statement in, in the first section of the Sermon on the Mount that is actually a direct quote, almost a verbatim quote from the Old Testament. Jesus is not really coming up with anything new other than saying, blessed are, uh, the, the meek shall inherit the earth. That's a direct quote from Psalm 37. Psalm 37. In fact, if you have a Bible, open up to Psalm 37. We're going to camp out there for a little bit because this is, this is like the epicenter of describing meekness for us in the scriptures, and I think it will really help us understand uh, what, what's going on here. Psalm 37, uh, and you'll see in verse 11, Psalm 37, that, that this is where the quote is. Psalm 37, verse 11, it says this, but the meek shall, shall inherit the land or the earth. Uh, and this was a, a typical uh, teaching tool uh, in Jesus' day. You know, it, as soon as he quotes Psalm 37, many people would have gone back to this passage of scripture in their mind and, uh, and associated the rest of the context of that psalm with what he was saying here. It, it's kind of like this. If you were to walk around, uh, if you were to walk around, uh, you know, your, your house or, or neighbor, um, and you, say, and you just said, uh, it means no worries, right? Just that phrase, it means no worries. What are people going to jump to immediately? For the rest of your days. Yeah, I mean, Hakuna Matata, right? Like, you just say the one, the one little phrase, and we import, like, this entire context behind it uh, that goes right in, that helps us capture what, the, the idea. And that's, that's what Jesus is doing. He, he quotes Psalm 37, uh, and, and most people would have heard that and immediately been taken to the whole context of what is in Psalm 37. And so that begs the question, what is th- Psalm 37 about? Why is he quoting this here in talking about a characteristic of someone who is in the kingdom of heaven? It's interesting. Psalm 37, I mean, if you're going to sum it up, uh, from the 30,000 foot view, it, it, it's asking a very, very important question, one that all of us wrestle with. Here's the question Psalm 37 is asking. Why does it seem, God, why does it seem like those who are wicked, you know, in other words, the the ones who are not following you, God, why does it seem so often that they are thriving? Why does it seem like they have what they need? Why why are they doing well while those of us who are trying to be obedient to you, follow after you, are going through uh, suffering, going through hardship, right? Why are they successful 
Why are they employed? Why, why do they have a job right now? Why do they uh, have the ability to, you know, have, have the freedom to pay their taxes, do whatever it is? Why, why are they doing okay and I'm not? That's the question of Psalm 37. And it's really a reversal of the, the classic question, not, not why do bad things happen to good people, but why do good things happen to bad people? That's what Psalm 37 is asking. Why do good things happen to bad people? And, and how do we make sense of that? How do we make sense of that? Because I mean, it, it seems to, to violate like, our deepest longings for justice. Like, good things should not be happening to bad people. That, that, that's typically how we, we operate. And don't tell me that as, as a Christian, you, you haven't asked that. I don't want to hear that. Uh, you, in fact, you might be asking that right now. The fairness of, you know, what's going on, maybe in a situation at work, right? Like, you're trying to be, you're trying to be faithful as an employee, as, uh, as a parent, uh, and your coworker who got no kids is treating it like a vacation and posting like how you know how much they they like the the alone time that kind of thing and you're like come what how do they get how do they get that break i don't i'm trying to be faithful and stewarding everything god that you're you've entrusted to me why do we live in a world where it seems like people get away with murder Again, we can't read this psalm, and, and if you're re- watching this in, in May, we can't think, not think of the, the story of the jogger in Georgia, Ahmad. How, how is it that people, how do we live in a world where people get away with murder? Why do we so often read of stories of powerful corporations taking advantage, oppressing people who have almost no resource or power to meaningfully fight Back. Why do good things happen to bad people? That's Psalm 37. And yet the constant refrain of Psalm 37 is that it is the righteous who will ultimately be preserved. Right, that at every turn, it might look like the, the wicked are, uh, are, are, are going to prosper, that the corrupt are going to, uh, going to win. It, it, it's actually quite the opposite. The psalmist, the, the author of this psalm, uh, actually says repeatedly through this, so you can see it right in verse 2, uh, that the wicked will fade like the grass and wither like the green herb later on. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. He will look to their homes and they will not be there. Because they will perish, right? This is what the psalmist is regularly saying. And when you get to verse 11, uh, the part of the psalm that Jesus quotes here in Matthew 5, this is, this is kind of the, it's not the climax, but this is, this is the big piece that he, the psalmist wants us to understand, is, is that it's not the wicked who will inherit the earth or, or receive and be brought into the kingdom and experience all of God's blessing, goodness, fullness, kindness, joy, and satisfaction. It's not the wicked. It is the meek. Verse 11, who will inherit the earth? And so that begs the question, what, according to Psalm 37, what are the meek like? First of all, you've got, you got to see that they are the opposite. The meek are the opposite of those who are resorting to uh, cruelty and, uh, you know, anger and corruption to get what they want. The meek stand on the opposite side of that. 
And this is, you know, you, you read through the, the psalm and, uh, I mean, the whole first half is all uh, telling the meek or the righteous person what they should do in light of the fact that it seems like uh, good things are happening to bad people. Here's what the psalmist says. Uh, he says, trust in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him. Be still before the Lord. Wait patiently for the Lord. Fret not before the Lord. And all of this kind of builds to this climactic point when you jump down to verse 28, Psalm 37, 28, where it says this, For the Lord loves justice, and he will not forsake his saints. For the Lord your God loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. See, here's the big piece that Psalm 37 is teaching us, the the thing that confronts our normal understanding of meekness. Psalm 37 shows us that the meek are not toothless. They are trusting. The meek are not toothless. They are trusting. To be meek means you are trusting in the God who cares far more about justice than you ever could. To be meek means you are trusting in the God who promises that he will not forsake you. To be meek means that you are trusting in the one who says who, he will not abandon you, who knows what you need and will provide for his people. The, the meek, see, are the ones who have a fixed confidence, a fixed confidence that God will provide even if they can't see how. That, that, that is the mystery of meekness. It's a fixed confidence that God will provide even if we can't see how in the moment. And this is why meekness in the Bible is so often associated with gentleness or the, the opposite of wrath and cruelty, right? Because the meek see, know, and are convinced that there is a God who's got you, right? There is is a God who sees, knows, and will provide for what you need, so much so that you don't need to go out and get it by your own means. You don't need to take up your sword in your relationships. You don't need to resort to anger or manipulation or, or even straight-up cruelty to get what you need. To be meek is to have been liberated uh, from the slavery to power hunger. That's what it means to be meek. Let me summarize this. Right? From Psalm 37 what we see is that the opposite of being meek is not being proud or arrogant. It's not. The opposite of meek is not pride or arrogance. The opposite of meek is to be equally convinced that you need to fight and win your own battles. That's the opposite of meekness that you are equally convinced uh, you need to fight and win your own battles. That power uh, is what makes the world go round. Power is what you need to impose your will on others to get what you need. Right, and here's the thing. I, I, know, I know most of us uh, would not consider ourselves to be power hungry, but uh, you know, we, we don't think of ourselves that way. I'm not power hungry. But, but I want to suggest that we may actually be... Uh, we may actually act as if we are power-starved far more often than we think. And frankly, it shows up in very small ways. It shows up in little ways. 
Let me give you a couple examples. Uh, for those of you who are parents, right? There, there, isn't this power hunger, this power hunger, isn't this what's really behind uh, how we can so often respond to our kids? And especially in the quarantine, when we, we are cooped up, we're like jam-packed like sardines sometimes in, in small places almost all day, trying to get one moment to ourselves. And if you're working from home or trying to balance, uh, you know, both spouses working from home and, and navigating the, the homeschool complexities and, and all of these things, and all you want to do in the moment is, is get a brief second to respond to an email. And at that time, uh, th- th- this is the moment when it seems like our kids have signed a pact together that they will wait for you to be doing something before they lose their minds, right? In fact, you might be watching this right now with your family and kids going nuts trying to figure out when you're going to have time uh, to watch another sermon this week. Screaming, chaos, tears, all of it. And so what do you resort to? What do we go to? But for some of you, maybe for you, it's your voice. And to demonstrate how much more power and authority that you really uh, should have in your kids' eyes, you get louder than you thought you could and louder than you probably thought you, you, you should, telling them to stop. Right? If you had Thor's hammer, you'd use it at that moment. And this is the power hunger that comes out in us. Trying to overpower our kids to get them to do what we want them to do in the moment. So the opposite of meekness is not, not pride or arrogance. It's, it's being convinced that we need to fight and win our own battles to impose ourselves on other people. And that, that plays out with our kids. And I mean, I mean, you see it even if you don't have kids or just in your relationships in general. Right? It's not just in our parenting. Power hunger shows up in, in our relationships, particularly when we are overly concerned with protecting and defending our reputations. I, I, I don't know about you. I've had this happen several times uh, during the quarantine specifically where you know, I've had people approach me with you know, ideas of things that the church should do or, hey, you should, you should really read this book right now. Read this article or uh, you know, he, here's something, you know, maybe you want to be thinking about as, as we're planning for the future, and, um, you know, whatever it might be, and, and you know, I, I'll say something like, yeah, that, that, that's a great idea, that's a great idea. In fact, I've actually been thinking about that a little bit, and, you know, I'll go, go off from there, and it's subtle, but, but I tend to include this last part, yeah, I've been thinking about that, just tagging it on at the end to, to remind the person that, I've already thought of what you're suggesting. To just subtly suggest that, thanks man, two steps ahead of you on this. I appreciate what you said, but, but I've already thought through some of those things. Why? Because I don't want them to look at me and say uh, that I don't have it together. I don't want them to think that I'm in a position of weakness. I want them to know right, that, that, that I've got my stuff together, or uh, it might show up in, for, for you. Uh, may, maybe that's not your thing. May, maybe your thing is to quickly, quickly and swiftly point out your flaws before anybody else uh, can get to them, right? You're like overly apologetic, 
as you, w- whatever you're doing, like you're, you're quick to point out anything that might be wrong with uh, a project you've been working on or uh, w- whatever it might be. And you're, you're doing that because you want to let them know that, uh, hey, if you think of, of, a, of an issue, I just want you to know I've already thought of it and, and maybe subtly suggest that you're, you're already working on a solution towards it. So you didn't really need them to point that out because you've got it handled. You're, you're working on it already. We're, we are quick to defend ourselves. We are quick to showcase that we are in far more control than the other person might, might think. And yet it is this same power hunger that's hiding just beneath the surface. And it leads us to to regularly, continually, habitually uh, focus on ourselves. It points the habitual camera on me, my needs, and getting them through my means. It's not just me who does these things. You do this too. You do this too. Where Where do you see power hunger kind of popping up in your life? Ask the question, where do you see power hunger popping up in your life. And yet th- th- this, is, this is where we get now to the beauty of the Sermon on the Mount again. Right? Because all of what, what we've seen in Psalm 37, that the meek are not toothless. They are trusting. They look to a God who will provide, a God who cares far more about justice than we ever possibly could and they entrust themselves to that God. This is what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount, that, that in the kingdom of heaven, it is not filled with people who are power-hungry, looking to provide for their own needs. It is filled with people who have been liberated, whose hunger for power has been obliterated. Right? It's filled with people who have been satisfied. It's filled with people who look to a God who has got them, and are convinced that he will provide for what they need. Blessed are the meek. Not because they're just able to roll with it, not because they're able to let things go, but because they uh, see themselves in a loving relationship with a God who is kind, providing, uh, and good. That is what the kingdom of heaven is like. And Jesus is saying that it's here now. That this meekness is the thing that should mark followers of Jesus. That we do not need to uh, resort to our own means to get what we need, but we, 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 can, we, we can look to a God who will satisfy us in the moment with what, with, with, with what we need. To be meek is not toothless, it's to be trusting And this meekness, and here's the thing, though. You know, we can look at the Sermon on the Mount and, and, and ask, end up asking the wrong question. It's, we, we can walk away thinking, how do I become more meek? How do I become more meek and, and be a part of the kingdom of God? That's not the right question. Right? We, we set this up in the very first message in the Sermon on the Mount. This is not a list of things that we need to go and do so we can buy our ticket into the kingdom of God. These are the list of characteristics of those who are already in the kingdom of God. Right? So what I don't want you to walk away thinking about is how do I go out and be more meek? That's, that's the wrong question. But what we have to see is that meekness is actually an integral part of the whole story of Christianity, of, of the gospel itself, that Jesus is the one who first demonstrates meekness perfectly, even in the face of injustice, 
and then empowers and enables his people to respond in meekness. And you see this in a couple places. You see it in, in, in the Garden of Gethsemane before his death. Right, as Jesus is praying before the Father, knowing all of what's going to happen, knowing that, that all of what he is the creator and sustainer of all things, what he could have done in that moment to, to provide something else, to provide a way out for him to do something else, uh, and yet in his meekness, what does he do? He entrusts himself to the Father. He says, not my will, Father, yours be done. He entrusts himself to the Father. Here's the second piece. You see, you see it on the cross. Where uh, Jesus has been crucified. When experiencing one of the most gruesome forms of execution ever uh, invented by the human mind. On the cross, being ridiculed by Roman soldiers and onlookers. What does Jesus say? I mean, he, he has the option of calling down a, ho a heavenly army to wipe out the people who are doing this to him right now. And yet, what does he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What's he doing? He's entrusting himself to the Father. He's entrusting justice into the hands of the Father. Not taking it on himself. Not taking it on himself. You see, the, the, the gospel goes on to say that Jesus uh, died in the place of sinners. See, see, our power hunger is the thing that, uh, that, that put him on the cross. That, that was our sin that all of us are guilty of. And yet on the cross, Jesus dies in our place for our sin, for our uh, thirst and hunger for power. And through meekness, he puts power hunger to death. Through his meekness, he puts sin to death. Yet again, he rose again on the third day, showing that he was victorious over sin and death, over, over power hunger. Right now, uh, as followers of Jesus, we are empowered by the gospel, by Jesus' victory over, uh, over sin, over power hunger, by his victory over those things. We are united to him so that we can live in that same kind of victory over power hunger. See, uh, we, what we don't need to do is just go out and try to be more meek. What we need to do is go out and, and, and see that we are empowered to be meek. As followers of Christ, we are already empowered to live in meekness before the rest of the world. Now, we're, the, the obvious question is, you know, how do we still do this in front of injustice? Like, is meekness the response to uh, injustice? And I'm going to say right now, we are going to talk about that much more next week when we get to the next Beatitudes. I'd love for you to come back, watch the next video. You can find uh, a link to all, this whole series right at the end of this clip. But, but I'll, I'll say this right now. No, to be meek does not mean we turn a blind eye to injustice. To be meek, again, means we are going to entrust ourselves to the one who cares far more about justice than we ever possibly could. This is what it means to be meek.
knowing that there will be a day, as Psalm 37 says, when the wicked will be no more, when they will be cut off, they will fade like the green grass and the herb. There will be a day when God finally, fully, and forever deals with wickedness in judgment. I mean, the thing to keep in mind is that uh, here on earth right now, the best we could ever hope to experience of justice it is only a shadow. It's only a shadow of what justice will be one day. And so as followers of Christ, to be meek in the face of injustice is not to do nothing. It, it, it's to do what we can and ultimately entrust ourselves to the one who cares far more about justice than we ever could. What does it mean to be meek as a parent? This is a hard one. To be meek as a parent means that you, in the moment when your kids are going nuts, you, you are saying, I'm going to entrust myself not, to, not to, to solve their craziness in this moment. I'm going to entrust myself to God who, who promises to bring peace. Right? The scriptures say that uh, he is kept in peace whose mind is set on him. As we fix our uh, attention, our confidence on God, we, we experience a peace that transcends what's going on even in the moment. You know that God will supply peace to you. That's what it means to be meek as a parent. In our relationships, to be meek means you don't have to go on the defense every time something is said about you or someone could walk away with the wrong idea means you don't have to go to your defense. But you entrust yourself to the one who cares far more about injustice than you ever could. See, meekness is not something that, uh, not, not simply the, the opposite of pride. Meekness is not weak. It's not timid. Meekness is beautiful. And I love, I love, how Jesus brings us up in the Sermon on the Mount because he, he, in describing the picture of the kingdom of heaven, he's saying this is what it's like to find yourself in the kingdom. Is to see meekness all around. Friends, thanks for tuning in uh, today. I'd love to have you come back uh, to watch the first couple messages in this series, or uh, if you're watching this later on uh, in the year, you can you can uh, find the next message right at the end of this video. And uh, thanks for tuning in. I'll see you on the next clip.